Margin Call is the podcast that gives you behind-the-scenes access to the ups and downs of working in the Forex CFD industry. We interview the people that keep the show on the road, giving you insight into what makes the industry tick. The series is guest hosted by myself, Jordan Michaelides, and produced by the team at Neural Media. To learn more, visit gomarkets.com slash podcast. That's G-O-M-A-R-K-E-T-S dot com slash podcast. Or take a look at the Go Market suite of products at gomarkets.com. Go Markets is a derivatives broker and Jordan Michaelides is the managing director of Neural Media. All opinions expressed by Jordan and podcast guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Go Markets, an AFSL license holder. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for financial decisions nor as an indication of future performance. Clients of Go Markets may hold positions in the derivatives mentioned. A financial services guide and product disclosure statement for our products are available at gomarkets.com. My guest this week is Pete Wargent, CEO of Next Level Wealth and founding director of Alan Wargent. Uh, we were just chatting about coronavirus. I know you've jumped back to the UK and we'll get into your early history in a moment, but uh, how do you think the cricket season's going to pan out this year? Um, well, just, um, England's actually had a, a pretty decent day today, but it's um, it's been very humid and cloudy, which tends to be pretty good for England's bowlers. But uh, yeah, I guess the um, I don't want to preempt too much because every time England come down under, we seem to get dusted pretty badly. So uh, yeah, we do pretty well at home, mind you. Do you um, like? I was looking at your early career, and uh, you're obviously from the UK, and you live in Australia now. Do you consider yourself uh, a pom or an Aussie by now? Yeah, I, I, call, I usually when people ask me, I say Anglo Aussie. But um, yeah, I mean, I, one of the things that was really uh, brought home to me after I became an Australian citizen, if my kids cheer for the green and gold, I should say. But um, yeah, I was at the uh, the Brisbane Test when uh, Peter Siddle. Um, took his hat trick and I, I wasn't sure at that time how I would feel about it but with all the Aussie mates I went with pouring beer on my head and uh, generally just riling me I think that pretty much confirmed that I think you can't really change your stripes when it comes to uh, supporting cricket teams so who uh, and plus yeah. um, I, I did um, play in my youth with Alistair Cook who was the England captain so I think um, based on that I'll probably always cheer for England, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Why why uh why Australia? Why come I mean I know you you got that opportunity with Deloitte. Um but what made you think oh I'm going to come out to Australia? No, it was actually cricket that brought me out um, was it? originally. Yeah, when I was 22, I I'd played with a lot of Australians in England and uh, a number of them had played um, at the Waverley Club, which is now Eastern Suburbs in Sydney. And um yeah, I thought I'd give it a go for a season, come and play a Waverley in grade cricket. And um, yeah, I guess like a lot of youngsters, I was a bit out of my depth originally, wrong side of the world, away from friends and family. But it, it was only really towards the end of that uh, year that I spent in Australia that I thought, well, I actually don't want to go back to the European winters. And um, yeah, that was really what uh, drove me to come back to Australia permanently. Really? So it was just, it was a simple fact that uh, the lifestyle seemed a little bit better. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, it's just a number of things. I mean, I suppose at that stage in my life, I was mainly interested in cricket, 
uh, cold beer and uh, warm weather. So it seemed like a pretty good combination. And yeah, um, yeah the, it's a pretty comfortable um, adjustment, I guess, especially if you're from a cricketing background because, uh, yeah, lots of parallels. Yeah, it's it's funny you mentioned that because we there there are a few um, poms that work at Go Markets and that every time you work in finance in Australia, there's a lot of English that work in the industry um, simply because it's you know it's the dominant one of the dominant industries in the UK and so it, it's one of those natural things that you get a lot of Englishmen and women that will come out to Australia. Um, and it's funny how many speak about lifestyle being the ultimate factor that makes them stay. Cause it is a hard decision. If you think about it, it's what, it's a 20 hour flight, uh, back home. So, you know, if, if you're missing family, it's not exactly, it's not like staying in Spain, is it? <laughs> no, it's a, it's a double edged sword. It's, um, especially now we have kids, um, you can't just pop home for a week or, you know, it's it's a it's a serious mission to fly around the world with two toddlers. So um, yeah, there's certainly as our parents have got older, because uh, my wife is also English born. Um, yeah, there's it does become logistically harder, and I know a number of um, people of our own sort of age cohort are finding the same thing. Um, as mm. parents get a bit uh, closer towards the end, uh, you need to be around a bit more. So yeah, it's not um, it's not always easy. And our original plan was to uh, split our time between England and Australia, but for whatever reason, we always seem to be in England over Christmas when it's freezing, and uh, so it doesn't quite work out as planned. But overall, it's pretty good. So you you've got quite an extensive industry acumen. I think I went through most of uh, your LinkedIn profile. You seem to start sort of in the area of accounting, and then move to Deloitte Private, and then eventually. Uh, into this property advisory business. And I can sort of see if you're working in uh, sort of private wealth, property would be the one of the most dominant asset classes in that, that group of individuals. And I guess I was curious, like what, why, why move into property in particular? Yeah. It wasn't necessarily as well planned as it sounds. I actually got, um, I was originally more interested in uh, stock market investing. Um, because my professional career, um, after I left uh, professional practice, I went into industry and I was a, a group FC. So a lot of what I used to do was uh, preparing listed company financials, uh, financial reporting. And I suppose naturally that just leads you towards uh, financial analysis, value investing, and uh-huh. mainly equities. But it was my wife that really got me into uh, property. She was from quite a different background to myself being a city person. She was from a, a farming background and you know, land ownership and property and housing investment. That was a big part of what she had been involved in before we were together. And it, it was really um, just seeing the results that she'd achieved over time that um, kind of led me in that direction. Really? And so like, what did you think you're going to be, uh, I guess, what was that original intrigue into real estate markets? Was there a particular project that you guys had taken on or that she'd taken on that really piqued your interest? Um, well, I think, um, yeah, so my, my wife inherited some money from grandparents when she was 21 and she'd got onto the housing ladder very young at a place called Cambridge right. in England. And yeah, um, yeah by, by the time we met, which was quite some time 
later. I mean, she'd pretty much extinguished half of the mortgage and um, Britain being very much a boom-bust economy. It had gone through uh, some serious real estate cycles, mainly on the upside. And uh, I guess just the, that combination, I guess, of the leverage and the growth, um, I could see how, you know, if well executed, real estate um, could work pretty well. So we we just followed on from that, really, uh, mainly in Sydney and London property. And it was, yeah, I mean, my professional career was uh, very much... Uh, bread and butter accounting auditing and then group fc roles um i wouldn't say it really grabbed me with a passion so um yeah it was just a, a natural segue into something a bit more entrepreneurial and yeah. um yeah property was something that we'd done for a long period of time so therefore uh, it seemed like as um good a place as any to to make a move what what did you think you were going to be when you were a kid Good Lord. Uh, well, I guess, yeah, like a lot of um, uh, people, I, I was mainly interested in playing football or, or soccer, as you'd say, in Australia and yeah. uh, and cricket. So, yeah, I mean, but very few uh, people make it to the top in those professions. Um, it's interesting, actually, having played a lot with um, Alistair Cook, who went on to captain England. The, the difference to me seemed to be just the sheer level of self-belief for, for most of us uh, mere mortals, you're sort of regularly self-doubting. But uh, yeah, so the sport was never, I was never quite at the the right level to, to go on and be a sportsman. So um, yeah, it was mainly when I was in my final year at university, I thought, gee whiz, I've got to actually think about what I'm actually <laughs> going to do with this uh, mediocre degree. And uh, yeah, I think accounting seemed like an obvious choice simply because it didn't uh, close off too many doors and uh, with a, an accountancy qualification a uh, big part of it for me was travel as well um, and fortunately um, chartered accountancy was on the skills shortage list in Australia at that time yeah uh, early mining boom years so uh, it actually did help in terms of getting residency do you, who do you uh, who do you support in the football I'm a long-suffering Spurs fan, so uh, oh, really? I, I'm actually uh, I have been able to go to a few games in recent years because Spurs have been playing at uh, Wembley while their new stadium's been under construction. Yeah. But um, yeah, I was a member at White Hart Lane in the Klinsman years, and uh, yeah, there was probably more downs than ups to be honest. But uh, <laughs> yeah, they um, they were a very good side when I was young and started supporting them under. Uh, uh, players like Glenn Hoddle and so on, but uh, yeah, we had quite a long lull in the middle. Oh yeah, a very a very long lull. I mean, um, it's it's funny. Um, there's so many Australians when they support a team. Uh, it's very rare. Like I, I've met very few people that support a team like Tottenham or West Ham or something like that. It's always the big teams. I know. I know that. Like growing up in the '90s, for me, my team was Man United simply because playing soccer here. Every time you bought one of those magazines, they would just be Beckham would be on the front, right? So it's it's funny how all of a sudden in the last few years they get right up to the top, and then uh, all these Tottenham Hotspur fans just exist. And I'm just like, uh, okay, it's it's yeah, a, it's a very Australian of, thing. Yeah, you can kind of tell um, often how old people are simply by who they support. Um, yeah, there was a period of time where there were a few Blackburn fans, but then that kind of that was short lived after their one yeah. season at the top. Um, but yeah, it was Liverpool in the eighties, then it became Manchester United, 
and then Chelsea were dominant for yeah. a while. So yeah, you can usually sort of gauge uh, people's year of birth roughly by by who they supported. <laughs> who they supported. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I remember meeting a few people and uh, they supported. Um, it's not United. Can't believe I'm blanking on it. Manchester City. Oh, City. Yeah. Yeah. And when they came into like, the money. Yeah, when they came in, that, I'm like, ah, oh, right. So you're a late bloomer. Um, <laughs> it's always funny when you meet people who are my age that support City. Um, let's talk about Alan Wargent. Uh, you're a partner, I guess, in this business. It's been going for quite some time now. I know, obviously, you mentioned your wife built that initial intrigue into real estate. How did this advisory business come out of that? Yeah, it's an interesting one because I, being a chartered accountant, um, you know, traditionally quite a stable and sensible, if not boring, profession to many people, uh, I would by no means consider myself a natural entrepreneur. And it was actually um, a, a guy who went to the same school that I did. Um, he read my first book um, probably a decade ago or so, a bit longer. And he actually came up with a suggestion of um, co-founding a buyer's agency in London, which we subsequently Uh rolled out in Sydney. So um, it was mainly his drive and um, commitment that got it off the ground because um, having never done it before, um, I was quite intimidated by the prospect of of running my own show. Um, So we did it together um, originally in London and then eventually we replicated pretty much exactly the same model in Sydney. Uh, there are some differences in terms of uh, the respective markets. London is very much driven by foreign money, foreign capital. Yeah. Um, Sydney, it kind of is, but that tends to be um, mainly new property in Australia, which is not what we do there. So, um, yeah, it's, it's been um, an interesting journey. More recently, um, I've been uh, Queensland-based, so we cover Brisbane as well. Uh, okay. But um, yeah, it's been a decade now and it's it's always been a, a steady business for us. We don't do very high volumes or anything. We're, we're more focused on uh, quality rather than quantity. And do you have, uh, has there ever been much cross-pollination from buyers between, say, that London area and Sydney over the years? Uh, there used to be. It changed a lot, actually, after the financial crisis, mainly... Right. The financing became a lot harder. Um, so uh, the, the, a lot of Aussies uh, used to be very interested in um, UK property, especially when the Aussie dollar was very high. Because uh, there was a, at one stage there, the pound was only uh, buying a dollar fifty. Um, yeah. So you know, the, the boot was on the other foot for once, and the Aussie dollar was much, uh, much stronger uh, than the pound. But um, the, I guess, um, as you would know, as I know, or always encourage people to think about, if you're going to invest overseas, there's a there's a lot more in the way of moving parts that you need to consider. So, for one yeah. thing, foreign exchange implication if you ever decide to repatriate funds, but there's also the potential for changes in tax laws so if you're uh, absent from a country and then uh, taxes come in. Uh, so the, the, there's all sorts of things you need to think about, but the biggest hurdle in recent years has been financing. Um, mm. You can still do it, but it's um, much more likely you'd need a larger deposit and you'll probably pay a much higher mortgage rate than you should yeah. if you're a non-resident. Yeah, it's funny you mention uh, that FX rate. Obviously, uh, uh, this being a go markets 
podcast being the FX business, it's you just remind me of the time that I was in the UK in 2012. And uh, that to me, I'm pretty sure was the high, one of the highest points for the Aussie dollar against the pound. And we were getting, I remember, if I remember correctly, 64 pence mm. uh, to a dollar. So it was a dollar 56. I'm just actually looking at the, sh- I've gone back and looked at the sheet from my trip. Because I, I was just, uh, me and my dad uh, being uh, always fascinated by this sort of stuff, we just couldn't believe. Because like, I, I remember in 2007, we went to uh, London for a family trip and I feel like we were getting like 30 pence or 40 pence. And we bought this, we bought an Aussie steak uh, in London because my dad was craving steak and it was something like 50 Aussie dollars for the steak. And he just couldn't, he couldn't believe it. Like he was just like, what? This would be like $25 back home and in 2007 but it is so important to take into account that factor i think um most of the trades in international stock market like being a value investor i I got on that apple trade in probably 2016 and 70 percent of the gains was just on the fx rate Mm. and it just highlights how important though all those multiple moving factors can be i know you've mentioned in the part like before that value investing seems to be your mindset and a an approach to things, or at least it drove your stock investing. And I, I come from a very similar belief system, principally. How does that impact your principles for investing and buying property? Yeah, it, it does. I, I think it's um, they're very different asset classes in many ways. Yeah. Because if you look at particularly on residential property, yeah, capital city uh, property, if you looked at it purely from a yield perspective um you'd never buy anything essentially because certainly compared to the yields available um uh, non-australian stocks for example um it's never going to be attractive and that's even looking at gross yields by the time you've accounted for the holding costs and yeah. uh, repairs and the, the other bits and pieces um yeah it, you're never going to get the equivalent uh, valuation um but i suppose uh, just to rewind to the beginning my journey in sort of value investing in inverted commas, it, I suppose when I started out, I was quite instrumental for a lot of companies when they switched over from uh, Australian financial reporting standards to international reporting standards. And it was a very tedious process, as you can imagine. And then I spent a number of years preparing listed company financials literally from start to finish. So I figured that nobody would know any more than I did about you know, disclosure notes and how to prepare financials from start to finish. And I suppose that led me towards the idea that analysis was the way to go. But I guess, um, like a lot of people, I learned there's more to it than just um, looking at a, a balance, balance sheet on year dot and one year of profit. You need to take into a lot, well, you need to have a much better understanding than that of industries and uh, you know, future trends and profitability. Um, and I suppose over time, I've, I've kind of moved much more towards uh, ETFs and buying you know, whole countries and sectors or styles, much more so than individual companies. Mm. Um, but in, in property, it's different because you, um, you really uh, can't get that diversification um, if you're buying an individual asset. Uh, it's very, very concentrated. Um, so... Uh, I've always been of the belief that um, you'd be much better off focusing on quality when it comes to real estate assets because um, almost by definition, 
you're taking on quite a lot of asset specific risk and it takes a lot of effort to unpick it if you get it wrong and the transaction costs can be quite painful um so i have a tendency to try and focus on areas where demand will be highest uh, even if it means that the, the the rental yield for investors isn't that high because yeah you can you can really get come unstuck in in real estate if you buy in a liquid asset um that you can't liquidate easily <laughs> when you're looking at buying then what do you look at because i've become very interested in property in the last two years you could probably say and i've just been trying to build a an understanding of how you evaluate a property and uh obviously with the the value-based approach for stocks i'm often looking at discounted cash flows and then pricing a stock based on that. And it seems the most value-driven way to price a house is, if you're looking at it from a pure investment perspective, is what is your net cash flow after all your annual costs and rent and so forth. So how do you start to look at look at it that way in terms of valuing the property, in terms of what's undervalued versus overvalued? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, the, I suppose if you if you took the view like a lot of people do, um, you know, you, a lot of people have argued for a long time that Australian property as an asset class has been too expensive. My um, experience of it seems to be the, the biggest um, driver for, for a lot of uh, the trends has simply been the cost of money or the price of money. Yeah. Uh, and if you look at serviceability, that's really, that's really the measure which has stayed most constant over time. Um, so, th- and this is just purely the macro level, I should say it, the, the local level there's a lot a lot of different drivers but the interest rate or the interest payments to income uh, ratio now we've we've had five interest rate cuts in 12 months it's back down to where it was uh, 25 years ago so mm. i guess um, that's probably a lot of what's driven price growth over time is simply interest rates coming down uh, but i would say if you're looking to buy a place to live then obviously that's driven by a uh, place of employment um, primarily, you know, school zones and things like that. If you're looking as an investor, usually I would just say take a top-down approach. So m- much as um, Simon Presley talked about on one of your other yeah. uh, podcasts, you know, you, you've got to look for you know which um, state and, and city is uh, best placed for uh, future price growth, and then and then just come down from there to um, uh, city, suburb, street level, and then property type. Because uh, one of the big trends we've seen since 2012 with all of the uh, mainland Chinese money has just been overbuilding of apartments. Um, so yeah. that particular sector, especially high-rise apartments, has become overbuilt and that, that will suppress price growth and it clearly has, in fact. Yeah, I think um, I think you're right about that. I, I know the type of apartments you're talking about, those sort of hot box uh, cookie-cutter apartments it's like how many can we get on one floor um type thing i think it's actually increased the value of houses in the process um you know one of the interesting things i think i asked simon about was a a lot of this audience who are fx investors would have primarily been focusing on fx cfds uh stocks and so forth trading with somewhere like go market so you're looking at probably a predominantly millennial market and in the last five to seven years, a lot of people would argue, well, the opportunity in property hasn't been there based on what you said, right? The, 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 the prices are going up because 
there's more money and money is cheaper, essentially. Where do you see opportunity in real estate over the next 12 to 18 months with the changes you've seen from coronavirus? Yeah, well, normally you would um, suggest a recession um, will bring about some forced selling, uh, better opportunities for buyers to negotiate. I I think um, in general, though, uh, rental markets have been really soft and that tends to mean you just won't see that many investors around for the next year or two. Um, I would say that most likely uh, the next couple of years will be characterized mainly by first home buyers uh, simply because the government puts in place uh, things like the first home loan deposit scheme, uh, stamp duty exemptions, um, you know, grants for people buying new properties. So any number of measures will be put in place to just encourage the first timers in. Uh, I don't think there'll be many investors around. Um, there's issues with vacancies and the CBDs at the moment. Um, you know, the rental markets are pretty weak. So that, that tends to discourage investors. Um, so actually on that uh, point, we've actually, um, we've got a, a, a different uh, business which is specifically targeted really to help people uh, as first time buyers. Um, so the business name is just Buyers Buyers. And um, we're actually offering a a more affordable buyer's agency solution because the full price or full service product tends to be pretty expensive for first timers. Mm. Um, So we want people to be able to go through uh, the appropriate due diligence process because I think back to when I bought my first property, I I really had no idea what I was doing. Um, So I bought a place in Bondi and uh, I just, you know, I, th- I thought I had a sort of reasonable idea, but looking back, um, you know, negotiation skills I didn't really have. Uh, didn't know how to uh, check body corporates or strata searches. Yeah. Just all kinds of things. I just didn't know what I was doing. So, yeah. um, and I think for first timers these days, uh, you've got to think smartly because your first step onto the ladder could be your most important. Um, yeah. So that's why we've offered a, a more affordable alternative for people uh, looking for guidance. Yeah, it's been interesting um, reading some of Simon Presley's stuff as well. And I think you've been speaking about it on Twitter. People would have expected that the property market, like you said, during a recession would come down. But people, uh, I've noticed here, at least in Melbourne, we're in this uh, you know stage for lockdown now. People are holding on to property a lot more and it's really hard to find newly listed properties uh, at least in the last two months in areas that I've been looking. And um, I just spoke to some real estate agents who handle those areas and they're like, yeah, everyone's either private sale or they're not doing anything at the moment. And Mm -hmm. that in and of itself has actually held the property price prices at a reasonable level. And there's no new building going on whatsoever. So I'd be intrigued to see how that six week to maybe even three-month period starts to affect property prices over the next 12 months? You know, does, does that, that lack of new stock coming on the market then keep prices at a reasonable level? Um, and also there's the fact that it's so cheap to get a loan now. You know, mm-hmm. it's the best time ever actually to get a loan, but there's le- you're competing with more people for, the, for less stock. So it's going to be very, very interesting. I, I guess I'm curious from your perspective then, the, I, know, I know you're in Queensland so you, and I think you're based in Noosa, right? So mm-hmm. you've not really 
seen the impacts like we have in Melbourne of coronavirus, but how do you see the longer term impacts over the next six to 12 months, at least in Australia? Yeah, so the big hit really so far has been to rental markets. Um, so I haven't got the latest stats to hand, but the, the latest figures I, sh- I saw showed that quite clearly there's thousands of Chinese students that just never came back oh, yeah, after yeah. Christmas. Um, so th- that had a real impact on the rental market. Um, a lot of empty apartments, especially in places down your way, uh, Docklands, mm. Melbourne CBD, inner city. Uh, so that that's had a real uh, knock-on impact to the rental market. Also, just a lack of tourism. Um, yeah, and 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 money going through the economy. I, I, you're definitely right. Like you can see on Latrobe, Lonsdale Street, um, in the CBD. I'm I'm on the other side of the CBD. It's it's normally pumping with local, uh, not local, international students. And there's a lot of shops that are tailored to that demographic, and they're dead. Obviously. They had to be shut down during stage four, but during stage three, there's there's no one there, which is fascinating. And especially Melbourne had been running at very, very high levels of population growth, like 125,000 per annum for Greater Melbourne. Um, right. I think over the next year or two, obviously with the borders closed, we'll, we'll essentially just slow towards the natural rate of growth, which is just more births than deaths. So that's a really yeah. big... Uh, now... Um, as you mentioned, the new supply is now really drying up, but Melbourne did have a bit of an overhang of new apartments anyway. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that the, one of the things that's holding up the prices is simply mortgage holidays that have now been extended out till March. So yeah. there's not many forced sellers at the moment, but there may be some come April next year. That's going to be very interesting. I think I was reading a piece the other day. I don't know if, I've, if I came across it via your Twitter profile for someone else, but um, Westpac uh, did like an analysis on their loan book, and something like thirteen percent of their loan book is currently on uh, on that holiday, and mm, some of them yeah. were just automatically applied as well, which is very interesting. Like up to fifty three percent of the potential group, they just did it automatically. Yeah, and I think um, uh, NAB had figures out today for the third quarter. Uh, so it's quite similar numbers across the board, really. Uh, so some people have started paying again, uh, but a lot of people, uh, they simply took the option to, to have just the to mortgage it, yeah. holiday. Yeah, and uh, you know, just to shore up their finances. Now, there's no free lunches there. And uh, I guess in most cases, the interest would be capitalized, but it's um, it's just a, a cash flow buffer for people. Others have been accessing their super early as well. So uh, hence why we're seeing just a number of really weird retail trends at the moment, um, luxury yeah. car sales and things like that. Yeah, w- w- What's in that? Because I- I've noticed like with, we've got a client who's in the luxury handbag sector and their sales are actually up. Yeah, I think the, the big thing that's changed is that most often, um, particularly since the mining boom, um, when Australia became a wealthier country, is that most, uh, well, a huge chunk of, uh, discretionary spend people uh, save for their holidays and this year holidays have been cancelled um, so people are finding other places uh, to put that money so uh, luxury uh, clothing handbags uh, luxury car sales have been really strong things like mercedes right and that's not not just in australia that's all around the world because yeah people haven't been able to travel 
uh, and it's a relatively recent thing in Australia that we have more people actually have, take short-term trips overseas than the other way around, people coming in. So although we're really hurting from the lack of tourism in Queensland, um, of course, a lot of people are now uh, holidaying at home instead. So it does keep... Yeah, they're not going to Bali. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. But it keeps Aussie dollars onshore, which is, a, I guess, from a forex point of view, is a net positive for the Aussie dollar. Yeah, it's uh, there's going to be really interesting um, sort of behavioral changes over the next two years. Uh, I reckon it's going to be a good two years until we're properly traveling overseas again like mm. we were, say, uh, late last year. You know, you think about it like Melbourne, Sydney, Perth, and Brisbane or the Gold Coast. It's actually often cheaper to go to Bali, uh, both in flights and combined with your cost of spend and stay and so forth than, than holidaying locally. And now you've got no option and, and people are obviously impacted by the lack of inbound tourism. So I wonder whether that will bring things back down to a reasonable level people are just going to be like, well, why would I go to Bali? So that's going to be a very interesting trend. Do you, do you subscribe to the idea that we're going to have a sort of V-shaped recovery or are you of the opinion like a lot of people that it's going to take uh, probably three to five years to, for the economy to come back to where it was, say, at the end of last year? Oh, the latter for sure. Yeah, I think the, the idea of a V-shaped recovery, I think it, it always seemed unlikely, but now it really is a pipe dream. There's there's too much damage being done by mm. um, lockdown. So I think as we talked about before we came on, um, I'm glad it's other people making those decisions, not me, um, because we'll probably only know the wisdom in the fullness of time. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of big businesses may well be backstopped by policies, but small business must really be hurting, uh, especially in Melbourne at the moment. Um, mm. So. I think uh, you know the base case forecast is unemployment, uh, official unemployment hitting ten percent, uh, but staying at seven percent for several years into the future. So, yeah, um, yeah, and that's you know that's assuming that um, things right themselves over time. So, yeah, I don't think we'll be getting back towards full employment for years to come now. No, I think it's going to be very, very hard. I think of our own situation as an agency, we wanted to make two hires. Uh, probably by April and then we, we were absolutely certain that wasn't going to happen by June and both those hires have become casual positions and that's sort of a good example of us wanting to make full-time hires and people being underemployed in casual positions. Um, so it's going to be very, very interesting. I think you're right about the, uh, the real unemployment rate. I saw the other day that uh, it's now at about 7.4%. They're saying that Victoria is about 11.4%. The numbers haven't come out yet um, because we, we're still looking at numbers uh, from the previous quarter. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, it's going to be interesting. If you were, I guess, treasurer, and you were made treasurer overnight, they brought you back from the UK, and they're like, all right, Pete, you're treasurer. <laughs> What would your what would the first ninety days look like? What would you be trying to do policy wise? Uh, well, I'd make the Reserve Bank get their mandate, which they haven't been doing for the past five years. But uh, assuming assuming no changes to uh, central bank policy, I think you know years ago we just assumed that if governments um, increased borrowing, then yields would follow and um, the cost of money would be higher. But it's been 
really strange to see. Uh, so, for example, in Britain, five-year uh, gilts, you know, negative interest rates. It was just unthinkable years ago. And that's with um, UK's public debt is above 100% of GDP, which we haven't seen for decades. Uh, so Australia, quite similarly, uh, is getting away government bonds at very low rates. So I guess um, there is scope there uh, to to actually borrow and spend. So I guess borrowing and spending on big infrastructure, um, things that could Im- improve productivity and mobility in the labour force, uh, that should be where the focus is and not trying to uh, sort of tighten and get the budget back towards uh, surplus, which always seems to be on the agenda in Australia, rightly or wrongly. Yeah, it's funny that it's it's like the go-to word. It's either the R word or the S word, recession or surplus. And um, yeah, there's always some tagline associated with that, like the bringing things back to black and all that sort of stuff. Um it's hard because I guess you, you're not based in Melbourne, but have you looked at this period and gone, I'm going to really utilize this. If, if business is down, I'm going to utilize this for better planning. How have you sort of seen this whole six-month period in terms of your overall strategy? Yeah, with our, our main buyer's agency, I mean, volumes are down, but people are still buying. So, um, yeah, we're, we're still ticking along reasonably well. Um, but, yeah, I have actually invested some time in the new venture, which is um, it's really a startup, just to focus on the first home buyers because they, um, the, the model in Australia for buyers agencies, it overlooks a huge chunk of the market. So in the States, for example, uh, something like 40 to 45% of transactions would involve a buying agent. Uh, but in Australia, it's more like two to two and a half percent. So in most respects, Australia is moving more uh, in the US uh, sort of model, in just in all aspects of life, really, you know, road signs, terminology, but real estate trends as well, we would think. Uh, so our goal really is to to open up buyer's agency to first home buyers and just a broader cohort, really, um, mm-hmm. but, but by offering a more affordable alternative because in Sydney and Melbourne, the full service uh, buyers agencies now very expensive you know they can be twenty thousand dollars and first timers just won't uh, just won't countenance that uh, quite understandably uh, so that's that's a, a goal that we've set there is to try and uh, raise the profile of buyers agents and actually get more people uh, familiar with the concept and actually using assistance to negotiate to go through the due diligence and just to help people avoid making costly mistakes. Uh, mm. So a good buyer's agent will save time, cost, and stress. Yeah. So the, the future then for you, what, is that, what does that look like the next six months? Um, I think, um, yeah, I think eventually the investors will dribble back into the market. I don't think we'll see a boom <laughs> on that side of things. But I, I think that a lot of first-time buyers... Uh, well, in fact, we know a lot of first-time buyers are coming because um, the the government has put in place 10,000 places uh, for the first-time loan deposit scheme. And in the first four weeks, I think they filled 4,000 applications. So uh, clearly, um, th- there's going to be a lot of first-time buyers come in in the second half of 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we just want to uh, focus on on that sector a lot and um, yeah, help people make a sensible first decision and the mm. first step onto the ladder. And if we can get some volume under our belt, that'd be great. Yeah. 
Well, look, um, I want to jump into some rapid fire questions to finish things off. I've got to ask during this whole uh, period, what sort of your, I know you're back in the UK now, but what sort of your morning and evening routine look like? Oh, goodness. It's been all over the place because uh, uh, I've, I've been having meetings at the beginning and end of the day. Uh, so uh, clearly my plan this year was not to uh, have to travel to the UK in the midst of a, a global pandemic, but it was kind of sprung on me at short notice for uh, yeah. family reasons. So uh, yeah, at the moment, very chaotic. I'm, I'm up early and up late, and, uh, <laughs> but the middle of the day is fine. <laughs> yeah. what, what, um, what was that flight back like? How many people were on it? It was. Um, it wasn't too busy. Uh, the, the wearing masks was compulsory, uh, which was good. Except everybody takes them off to eat, of course. Um, and also, we have two toddlers, so um, trying to uh, keep a three-year-old to wear a mask for twenty-four hours is a losing battle. But it was relatively well spaced out. Um, Changi Airport, I've never seen so quiet. So, uh, right. yeah, there wasn't, it was, there wasn't much in the way of risk. Um, it was just a fairly unusual experience, really. Yeah, it would be. I can imagine Changi Airport, there'd be no one there. The only time I've really seen that is when you're there at like 3 a.m. in the morning <laughs> um, and everyone's in the lounges or the hotels. Hmm. Um, what's sort of been your go-to item in the fridge during this whole lockdown period i don't know if you if you've had like a an item i know for me uh, it's definitely been kinder bueno to keep me happy <laughs> yeah <laughs> peanut Victoria. butter mainly for me yeah peanut yeah, butter. yeah i'm a vegetarian so uh, that's somewhat limited limited choice and i try and stay away from the dairy so uh, yeah mainly peanut butter in the fridge okay what's been your best purchase under 200 dollars that's helped you during this whole period and you could have purchased it before or during uh, the last six months, but something that's um, been quite enjoyable for you and not AirPods because everyone says I was going to say, it's, it's all, almost certainly some form of tech. It would be, uh, like I'm using a microphone for this. Um, What's the but, mic, uh, by the way? Um, yeah, with my eyesight, it's very difficult to read. Audio Technica. I ah, think yeah. it would be... Uh, a yeah, USB it's, style? It's, uh, yeah, it's a USB plug-in, but it's, yeah. um, it's, it's done the job reasonably well so far. The Audio Technica uh, are very, very good. Very good. Yeah. And they improve yeah, thought, your whole Zoom game massively. Yeah, well, that's that's really been what's characterized this year. I mean, we, <laughs> we did use Zoom uh, quite a bit before, but now it's, you know, everybody's on Zoom and Skype. And uh, uh, I've been doing some uh, Osbiz TV appearances and that's all on Skype as well. So, yeah, I wouldn't say I've really spent much outside of um, just little bits and pieces of tech this year. <laughs> so that's been about it. And uh, when I was in Noosa, mainly just uh, stuff on the golf course, mainly. I, w- I would agree with that. And I think um, it's been really interesting being in the video podcast production game and how many people have now all of a sudden wanted one overnight, but also when we've tried to do certain projects for people needing to buy certain equipment and all of a sudden it's just gone and it's just quite amazing to see how many people have got into live streaming decks and video switches and all these random pro devices that all of a sudden the consumer is obsessed with. So it's been very, very funny. Um, If you had to recommend one doco movie or TV show you've been watching during this period, what would it be and why? Um, well, I've been mainly watching cricket. The the best documentary <laughs> I've watched recently was the um, Ayrton Senna documentary. Ah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, 
there's really fascinating stuff uh, for anyone interested in sport, but even if you're not, just um, really good insights and, and memories as well. Um, but yeah, I've um, I've had a, a couple of long haul flights to navigate this year uh, with kids. So I've, I've watched some really bad old movies as well. Yeah, I, I would I would second the motion of that Essen Center Center doco on Netflix. It's really really good, and if you like that, Drive to Survive is quite amazing as well. All seasons um, is really good. Um, it's just a pity that they won't be filming one really this year, or mm. at least it's going to be quite reduced. So it's going to be interesting. Look, Pete, thanks for coming on. It's early in the morning uh, in the UK, so I appreciate you doing this. Uh, where can people find you on the interwebs? Uh, probably the easiest place. I, I tried to stay off that wretched Twitter website, but uh, <laughs> uh, at Pete Wargent on Twitter, uh, and I do write a daily blog, uh, Pete Wargent Blogspot, which um, is uh, quite cathartic for me. It just gets some ideas out there so I don't have to uh, bore everyone around me with my daily thoughts. Uh, so uh, those are the easiest places. And I do have a um, a new book out as well, so you can check out that at PeteWargent.com. Uh, and the book is called Low Rates, High Return. So it's just about how to manage your own money in a low interest rate environment. Yeah. Well, we'll link all of that. Um, thanks once again, Pete, for, for coming on. Pleasure. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Margin Call. Before you run off, make sure you subscribe on your podcast app to get first access to new episodes. And consider sharing this with a friend who loves the Forex CFD game. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube by searching Go Markets. That's G O M A R K E T S. Until next time, thanks for listening.